1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Once they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes, and then went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. I've got to be honest. When I first read this passage in preparation for this morning, I was a bit annoyed. At surface level, on first reading, I thought this passage is really quite an unhelpful story. Particularly unhelpful for those whose prayers have not been answered. And on top of that, I thought, how misguided is Hannah to bargain with God? That's not exactly the gold standard of prayer. And then as I was thinking through the different ways that this passage was slightly irritating to me, another question emerged. I thought, why this story? Why the plight of this particular woman recorded in our scriptures? And this was a more fruitful question because as I started to think about it and look for an answer, I realized that although this story is perplexing in some ways, it's a microcosm of some of the most central themes in the Bible. So let's talk about what happens in a bit more depth. To do this, I'm going to briefly summarize the previous nine verses that we didn't hear that are the beginning of the story. And they're about Hannah's family dynamic. So Hannah is one of two wives. Her husband, Elkina, is a godly man. He takes his family to the place of worship every year, that's Shehol, where the Ark of the Covenant was being kept at that time. And the family stays there for several days, maybe several weeks, eating, drinking, and worshiping God. But this year, Hannah isn't able to join in the festivities. She isn't able to worship God as normal. Hannah has two problems. The first problem is that she's not able to have a child. And this is despite the fact that she's been married for many years and that her husband loves her and cherishes her. In fact, Alkina clearly favoritizes Hannah. 
and gives her special honor over and against his first wife. And so that brings us to Hannah's second problem, the first wife, Penina. Because Penina is cruel to Hannah. Penina has many sons and daughters, and I have some sympathy for her. She probably longs for the type of love and attention that Hannah receives. Penina is constantly giving birth to children, raising them, and working so hard to be the perfect wife. But no matter how much she does that, and no matter how long Hannah goes without conceiving a child, Alkina favoritizes Hannah. It's never enough, and this turns Penina cruel. The text describes the two wives as rivals, and every time Hannah goes to worship God, Penina thunders against her. I don't know if anyone's ever thundered against you. The English text only translates it as grievously irritated her, but you get the idea. <laughs> and so it's for these two reasons that the text says, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah is unable to put on a brave face anymore, and she's unable to give thanks to God for all the other good things she does have in her life. Her husband's response is to try and comfort and rationalize her. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Am I not enough? That's what I hear in his question. Why can't you just be happy and content? Perhaps her grief made him feel inadequate. And so that's what happens in the previous nine verses, and that's where our story picks up today. Hannah doesn't answer her, question, her husband's questions with words. She just stands up and goes to the temple. And there she cries, and she pours out her heart before the Lord. She doesn't put on a brave face in order to please her husband. And she doesn't retaliate against Penina. She just turns to God, and she's honest about how she feels. The passage says she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. It's not a pretty sight. In fact, Eli the priest thought she was drunk. <laughs> but Hannah was doing the right thing. Penina thought... If I can just get my husband to love me, maybe like he loves Hannah, maybe more than he loves Hannah, then I'll be happy. And so I imagine that she was furious that Hannah had the very thing she wanted, and yet Hannah was discontent. And so I wonder if someone here, if there's someone in your life, rather, who seems to have the very thing you want, and it doesn't make them happy. Or maybe you identify more with Elkanah. He wanted to be enough for Hannah. He loved her so much, and I imagine he felt inadequate because she just needed more in life. And perhaps that's how you feel this morning. Inadequate or annoyed because no matter what you do, it's never enough for someone that you love. If you identify with either of these two characters, I recommend that like Hannah, you turn to God and you tell him what's going on. Because unlike Penina and Elkina, Hannah knew that human love would never satisfy her. It sounds like it was a hard lesson to learn, 
but she's the character in this story who learned that lesson. So at this point in the story, Hannah's in rather a good light. In fact, I'm starting to like her in her story. And this is especially true if we compare her with other similar stories in the Old Testament, like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or Rachel, the wife of Jacob. Let's take Rachel as a counterexample. Like Hannah, Rachel was deeply loved by her husband. And like Hannah, she was unable to have a child. Jacob's other wife, making it worse, it's Rachel's own sister, Leah, is the opposite. She's like Penina. She is completely unloved by her husband, but she bores Jacob four sons. So there's clearly a parallel between the two stories. In Genesis 30, we read that when Rachel sees the situation that she's in, she doesn't turn to God. She turns to Jacob and she says, give me a child or I will die. And Jacob, I think quite fairly, gets angry with Rachel and says, am I in the place of God? Who is it that has withheld the fruit of your womb? But even when Jacob says, it's not my problem, you've got to take it up with the Lord, Rachel doesn't actually do that. She doesn't turn to God, but instead offers to Jacob her handmaiden, Bilhah, to sleep with him and have a child on her behalf. And then this awful competition goes on for decades as Rachel and Leah give their two handmaidens to, to Jacob to sleep with, and he has a grand total of 10 children before they, he's done. I mean, it's just awful. How much better would it have been for Rachel to be like Hannah and just turn to God at the beginning. By trying to fix the situation herself, she just made it worse. It is so much better to be honest with God, pour out your heart to him. He can handle it. But if you don't, you might just end up making things worse. But then we get to the tricky point in this story. Hannah makes a vow. And I don't feel so good about this bit. Didn't Jesus in Matthew 5 say we shouldn't make vows? I don't really want to hold Hannah up as the perfect example at this point. I don't think we should, as a general rule, try and bargain our way with God. So how do we understand this part? I think Hannah might be seen to stand in a long line of Old Testament voices who in face of pain and affliction, put God on trial. The Old Testament is a story of a covenant between God and humanity. And it's clear that humanity breaks the covenant hundreds and hundreds of times. In fact, God sends prophets to make sure the people are reminded of that. But sometimes the voices in the Old Testament turn the tables and they question God instead. And I think this is what Hannah is doing. This is what I hear in her cry, in her vow. Are you the God you say you are? Do you really look on the affliction of your children? Because I'm being afflicted. Are you really the one who remembers pain? Because I feel forgotten. Are you the God who hears the voice of the voiceless? Because we read that Hannah's lips moved, but her voice wasn't heard in this story. We have an explicit case of God hearing the voice of someone who is voiceless. 
So the stakes are pretty high as far as I can read it in Hannah's prayer. And they often are high stakes when we're talking about deep pain and deep suffering. Because Hannah is questioning the very character of God. Are you who you say you are? If so, give me a son. So that's my dramatic reading between the lines of Hannah's vow. But let me remind you what verse 11 really says. And she vowed a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. I think it's an odd vow. Hannah is not only asking to be a mother. That part comes right at the end. Before then, she's asking to be heard, to be looked on, to be remembered and not forgotten. She's asking God to be God. But the sign she's looking for, the only sign that will show her that God has heard her plea and understands her pain, is if God gives her a son. She longs for a son, and she deeply wants to be a mother, but what she needs, what she needs above all else and cannot live without, she needs to have her pain acknowledged by God. She needs to be seen, and she needs to be remembered. And I think it's clear that this acknowledgement is, when push comes to shove, enough for her, because in return, she says she'll give back the very son that she wants. She'll give him to the temple to be raised by the priests. She doesn't promise to live a good life. She doesn't promise never to complain again or never to do another bad thing. Instead, in her promise, we see that the gift that she longs for is not more important than the God who gives it. Let me say that bit again. The gift that she longs for is not more important than the God who gives it. And so she offers all that she hopes for back to God. She'll always be a mother. But she gives up the joy of raising her son. And she gives up the physical and financial protection that a son would have provided her at that time. And when her son is born, she names him Samuel. Which in Hebrew, I'm told, sounds a lot like the word heard by God. The deepest cry of the suffering heart is not to have what we want, but just to be heard. Hannah doesn't hear a booming voice in the temple. God doesn't speak explicitly in this passage. And Hannah's not made pregnant miraculously right then and there. All she gets in our passage, really, is a reassurance from Eli the priest. And interestingly, it's not entirely clear if Eli knows what it is she's asking for. There's a good chance he did, but the text doesn't tell us. All he knows for certain is that she has been speaking silently out of great anxiety and vexation. That's all she tells him. But I don't think Eli needs to know, because Eli knows two other things. (laughs) Eli knows that God is bigger than any problem this woman could have. And Eli knows that God really is the God who hears the cries of his people. 
And because Eli knows those two things, he says to her, go in peace and let the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. That's it. She's been heard. She's been seen by the priest and she's been reminded of who God is. Someone else came alongside her and prayed that God would hear her prayer too. There are two times that the blessing of the peace is going to be shared in this service, as it is every Sunday morning. The first is when we turn to each other and say, peace be with you. Perhaps part of that blessing that we extend to each other needs to include a willingness to hear each other's pain, to share each other's burdens, and to remind God, remind each other who God is. You don't have to do it right then and there. But a general willingness, I think, has to be part of what that means. And the second time is when Dave, as our priest, speaks the words as Eli did, go in peace, right at the end of the service. Before he says those words, is there some grief or anxiety that you need to pour out to the Lord so that in return he can pour in his peace? In, in, perhaps in the prayer ministry time, you would like someone to come alongside you and for God to hear your petition. So we're coming to the end of this story and all my thoughts about it, but I'm still left with a question. Why Hannah? That was my first question, you remember? Why this specific answer to prayer in our Holy Scriptures? I like to think God answers quite a lot of prayers. So why is this one so important? And I think it's because it fits into a larger narrative. Why did Hannah want this thing, the gift of a son, as a sign? I think it's because God was going to give another son. God's ultimate answer to the cries of humanity is the gift of a son to let us know that he hears us to let us know that he understands our pain. And like Eli, this son is also a priest. He's our great high priest, and he says, my peace I give to you. This son wouldn't just anoint the kings of Israel, as Samuel would do when he became an adult, but this son would become the king of the universe. This son was not only given to the Lord all the days of his life to serve in the temple and make sacrifices for the people of Israel, but this son... When he, walked the days, when he walked the earth, that was God walking the earth all the days of his life. And when he gave himself up as the final sacrifice, and now he is dwelling in the heavenly temple, offering petitions for the whole of creation. This son wasn't Hannah's son. This son was Mary's son, the son of God, Jesus Christ. So I think Hannah's story is important because it foreshadows the coming of the most important son in history. And Hannah's voiceless cry is a symbol of the cry that all of creation shares. A cry, would God hear our pain and send us a son? And when I think about it like this, Hannah's story doesn't annoy me anymore. Because now when I read Hannah's story, I'm reminded not that God has favorites and sometimes he answers prayer and sometimes he doesn't. 
Now I'm reminded that actually God has answered all our prayers in the sending of his son. And so with Hannah, we can be glad because God has heard our voiceless voices and he gave us his own son. Amen.